Welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Friday, July the 5th. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in this Friday to the Daniel Werman Show. Coming to you live from the Dream Imaginate Sports Studios. Coming up in just a few minutes, we will have Sherry Levesque, the Executive Director of Soccer Maine. Excited to talk to her. Hope everyone had a great 4th of July. Um, It was a nice, quiet day for us with our family, um, hanging out with family, eating too much, and watching some fireworks. And uh, one of the conversations we had uh, yesterday, my brother-in-law and I were were watching, um, you know, some TV, nothing in particular of of note, and we're having the conversation about why does does Major League Soccer not capitalize on a holiday like this? and uh, and we've had a similar conversation in the past about uh, you know Memorial Day weekend, but on the Fourth of July, why not stack up you know three, four, five Major League Soccer matches and make a big you know day of it? Why not you know try to to, to capitalize on this holiday? And if you're going to play through the summer, which is already to me an issue, you should be trying to follow a, a fall to spring calendar. But if you're going to play through the summer. Why not really do a lot on 4th of July, especially throughout the day? There's not a lot of competition on television, especially sports programming, and why not capitalize on that? And so we were having that discussion. And then, you know, obviously I, I look and see that, that the Las Vegas Lights FC of the USL Championship uh, host LAFC 2 last night, 2-2 draw with a with a fireworks show at the end and, and a lot of uh, community engagement, uh, you know, an organization that is trying to, to do a lot in their city, in their community, um, and, and put a lot of effort into those kind of uh, operations and plans and, and engagement. And then, uh, you know, think to that conversation that my brother-in-law and I were having about Major League Soccer and why they don't engage. And I really do think it's a missed opportunity uh, for MLS to really do something. And I think the NWSL has the same opportunity as well to, to stack up some matches on that day. And maybe they even, you know, alternate and they go back and forth and they work together and they, you know, maybe they do an MLS, then an NWSL, you know, back and forth, uh, so on and so forth uh, for, for the 4th of July. But I think it's a missed opportunity for soccer. If we're going to play through the summers, which is absurd, if we are going to play through these summers, we should take advantage of a holiday like the 4th of July and 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 do a lot more programming on that day and and I think it I think the sport uh, if we are going to play through the summer would be better for it um so you know I I think you know that was one of my big takeaways from yesterday and then obviously seeing what what Vegas did last night with with uh, with LAFC2 coming to town um just further to me provided proof that that's the way to go and uh 2-2 draw obviously i'm sure you know eric and 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 the team would have preferred the three points uh no doubt but uh when you have a day like that and family and and all of that i mean that's also a really big 
component of building a club culture and, and building a, a true soccer community. And that's a holiday that you can you can get your 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 team and your organization and the community on the same page and really build some camaraderie uh, for, you know, for your organization with the community. I think it's I think it's a missed opportunity for both the uh, NWSL and MLS and really making that a big, you know, front and center, um, you know, deal. And, uh, and, and, and we need more of that in this, in, in this country, we need to build a soccer culture. You know, we had Tom Byer on earlier this week talking about culture, you know, eat strategy for breakfast. And this is a way that you can build culture. You can go into your communities and build culture. And, and, and one of the ways of doing that is finding things like this, the 4th of July that you can really wrap your organization and the in this in your city up together in in one um you know one mind one passion one event and bring everyone together uh, i just think it i think it's something that we should look at doing more of uh, in in american soccer finding better ways to promote the sport and and build the sport and i think us soccer should be having a big presence on that day as well um, you know, I, I, I wish that the 4th of July not only stood for Independence Day, but it stood for freedom and opportunity for all American soccer clubs uh, as well. And we're not there yet. And, uh, and I hope that we get there one day. And, uh, and part of that is, is working together. It's coming together and saying, hey, we need to do better. We, we could be and we should be better in these areas and and we we demand from our federation opportunity to do that and uh, the biggest the biggest aspect of that is opening the system up so that that clubs can move up and down a, a system of connected leagues based on how they do on the field so if you win you move up if you lose you go down um, that is the essence of promotion and relegation. If, if you think of it in baseball terms, you know, the, the baseball system in America uh, doesn't implement promotion and relegation, but it has a, a defined structure. You have major league baseball, then triple a, then double a, then single a, you know, which is like a high a, and then you have a low a uh, baseball, so on and so forth. And you have multiple levels Imagine if you if you're in a city and you have a a double A baseball team and right now it's probably hard to get a lot of crowds to come to your games because the the team doesn't own the players the big league club does you don't know how long the players are going to be there there's not a, a a lot of emotion and connection to your community so it's it's very difficult to to build profit and a profitable uh, ecosystem around minor league sports, but imagine that that Double A baseball team owned its players, and if it won its championship, that the next year they could play in Triple A baseball, and imagine a year after that they won, and and now they've gone from playing Double A baseball against you know other 
smaller markets, and now they have won their way up into the big leagues. And now they're hosting the Red Sox and the Yankees, the Mets, the Pirates, the Cubs. It's a different world in that city. The support for that team is incredible. And the incentive for that team to go into its local community to develop its next generation of baseball players is inherent. It's understood. It's something that you you don't even question. You know that that is going to happen. And it totally changes what that organization means for its city and what the city means to that organization and that area. If that structure and system was in place, your your travel baseball teams that, that operate now would be funneling into that local AA baseball organization. That club would be going out and recruiting and scouting and finding the best baseball players, young baseball players, to play in their academy, baseball academy, to get them ready for prime time. That's what happens naturally. The city gets activated. The community gets activated. The club gets connected. The passion level rises in that city. And the opportunities for local players increases exponentially. Everyone now has a reason to care. The young baseball parents, the young baseball player, the, young, the, the, the baseball fans in the community who want to come out and support their team. And now they're watching some of their local kids play right before their eyes. That's what happens. It's a system based on merit. If that team wins, they've punched their ticket for the next level. If they win the championship, they get to go and play AAA. If they win that championship, they get to play Major League Baseball. On the flip side, if you're terrible and you're the Pirates and you were horrible for years and years and years and years, but you have no incentive to get better, you have no incentive to to put a better product on the field for your community. So you just languish in mediocrity and and being terrible for a very long time. You can't win. You don't try to win. Now you have a, a motivation built in because if you don't win, if you don't try, if you don't invest in your squad and make them the best that it can be, then your club is going down and you're going to play AAA baseball instead of Major League Baseball. And you're going to have to win your way back up. It changes everything on the field. Merit should matter. Opportunity and access should be the norm. It should be the way that we do what we do. And that goes for really all sports. This is the norm in global soccer. It is an expectation of FIFA. To be in compliance with FIFA is to give every club the opportunity to rise and fall on on-field performance. The principle of sporting merit, of promotion and relegation. That is the promise that should be offered 
to every American soccer club. The ability to get on the field, to do your best, and to move up, to get the opportunity to play at a higher level. When we do that, we not only have a system of connected leagues, but we have a country of activated communities. We have cities where their clubs and their organizations are in fact fully invested in providing local players opportunities, defining the best players for their organization. Artificial scarcity is a direct result of a closed system where, where an organization like Major League Soccer can come into a city and extort taxpayers to get them to publicly fund their projects. Because if, if you don't give them millions of dollars, they will not give you a team. It should not be that way. If a club can, can perform on the field and can succeed, and it is sustainable and viable, it should not have to turn to its community and extort its taxpayers for millions of dollars to be able to play at a higher level. It should get that opportunity because it earned it on the field. That's not to say if the taxpayers wanted to subsidize or, or put taxpayer funding towards a new stadium project or what have you, that it, that it shouldn't happen. But the, the situation we have now, the environment that we have now is an environment of extortion where you don't, you don't even get the choice. If you don't do this, you will not get a major league soccer team. If you don't provide some kind of public funding, if you don't give these wealthy billionaires and millionaires your tax money so that they don't have to spend their own money to build a stadium or to bring a team into your community. It, 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 is, it is an absolute fleecing of American taxpayers. This system of artificial scarcity is wrong, and it is the absolute backwards way that we should be handling soccer in America. We should be saying we are, are the land of the free, of opportunity, of access, of merit, of quality and excellence, not mediocrity, not parity, but the best. We are the home of the best. And if we aspire to be the best, if that is our goal, our aim, our mission is to be the absolute best, then we need to open this thing up, connect our leagues, and make a pathway for clubs to rise from a grassroots community club to a top-level, first-division Amazing club, all on the on the backs of the efforts on the field of the club, its players, its executives, and its supporters. That is what I wish for in American soccer. 
when we get to that place, soccer in America will explode. There's no doubt about it. Our sponsor uh, this half hour is Ductic Brand. Ductic is a maker of really cool products for coaches, goalkeepers, players, etc. Check them out at duktigbrand.com and use promo code DW Show to get 10% off your order. Again, that is DW Show to get 10% off your order. We will be right back after this with Sherry Levesque. show thanks for tuning in this friday morning july the 5th we are really excited to have joining us sherry levesque she is the executive director of soccer maine sherry welcome to the show how are you this morning i'm great daniel it's uh good to be on and we are really happy to have you on um last weekend uh, you were down in West Virginia for regionals. Um, what what was the experience like uh, in terms of the weather? I saw some some weather readings down there that were pretty hot. Tell us about some of those uh, conditions. Well, it's West Virginia, so West Virginia in late June, um, early July is pretty steamy. Um, it was. 95 degrees every day that I was there um, and half of the games were on turf. So that presents an entirely new uh, set of problems with the turf readings being, you know, up to 150 degrees. Uh, It was hot. Lots of water breaks. Um, They went from one water break each half to two water breaks each half, which, you know, can disrupt the flow of the game a little bit. So, um, yeah, it was hot. So your your teams, how many teams from Maine uh, made it the trip down to West Virginia to compete uh, last weekend? Well, that's a really good question. There were zero teams from Maine there. Zero teams. <laughs> zero teams. So, uh, so you were there taking in the event. What did you see from this weekend that you you said, "Hey, I, I can." 
I can take this back to Soccer Maine and help us going forward? Um, well, that was really the primary reason why I was there. Um, as a state representative, I really wanted to take in the event and figure out ways that we can kind of resell it to our teams up here. What's happened over the last five years or so is that people have really moved away from the, this amount of travel. They just don't want to go that far. And for us in the eastern region, West Virginia is the furthest point from Maine. So our teams in Maine just don't want to go there. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate because West Virginia does an amazing job at hosting this event. Uh, they have a, a vast volunteer network that is second to none. I don't know how they find all these people that help, but it, they have an incredible volunteer base. But it's a hard place to get to. Um, it's a big trip for anyone in Maine. You, you really have to fly there unless you want to drive 14 hours. Um, so it's a struggle for us to get teams to want to go that far. Uh, and we're not the only ones. Uh, Rhode Island had no teams there. New Hampshire only had one team there. So it's really affected the small states that regionals has been in the very southern half of the region for the last six years. So in region one, does does that event not move around the region? Is it kind of primarily based in one area? Is that a bidding thing? Is that a volunteer, hey, we'll host? Kind of how does that process work? Well, it's, it's a bidding slash volunteering to host. Um, and if you're the only state that volunteers to host, then you're going to get it. And, and that's really what's happened over the past six years. Um, this year and next year, it's in West Virginia. The previous two years, it was in Virginia. The previous two years before that, it was in West Virginia. Um, so it, it, it's a tough event to host. And the, the what do I want to say? The, um, the parameters of hosting that event have, have changed over the years, um, which has made it harder for states to be able to do it in terms of the field complexes that they might have at their disposal or even the money that they could possibly benefit from from the event. So uh, talking about complexes in in Maine with Soccer Maine, um, what what do you guys in terms of infrastructure have that at your disposal versus some of these other states that you're visiting, like going to West Virginia, for example, to, to regionals? What, what are those standards for a regional? And then what are you guys dealing with there with Soccer Maine? Well, to host regionals, they really want you to be able to do it at two sites, you know, maybe three if you just need an outlying field or two. Um, so you've got to have, you know, large field complexes. In the case of West Virginia, they've got 14 fields at one complex, and I think they had 12 at the other complex. So 26 fields just in those two areas. We have nothing like that in Maine. And actually, we hosted regionals in 2007 and 2008 um, before you really had to concentrate your, your locations 
And we had games all over the place. <laughs> we had two fields here, three fields here, five fields here. And we used a lot of college campuses um, and even a high school campus. Um, and people drove around a lot to their games. And that was acceptable then, um, 10 years ago. But it's it's not now. So that has made it much harder for certainly any of the small states to to host, but even a lot of the larger states who just don't have those field complexes. In West Virginia, they've really gotten a lot of buy-in from their actual government, their state organizations. Um, and, and that's something that a lot of the other states don't have. <laughs> When we talk about numbers and and obviously infrastructure with fields, soccer main, how many players are you registering per year, and how does that compare to some of your neighbors up up in the northeast and mm-hmm. and then also region one at large? That's a good question. Um, we are we're considered a small state, not in area, but certainly in numbers. We register about 11,600 unique players every year. Um, that's comparable to Rhode Island, bigger than Vermont, slightly smaller than New Hampshire, um, Massachusetts, who's our nearest, you know, what I would call big soccer state neighbor. They're 140,000, just to give you a comparison. Um, they're right around 140,000 for their numbers, uh, so quite a bit bigger than we are. So, so basically, you're you're kind of 10 percent of the size of Massachusetts in terms of right. of of registrations. And do those right. and, and your registrations, how high are those going up in ages? Are those going into adult numbers, or are those primarily youth players? Youth players only. So we we don't as, as Soccer Maine does not. Um, register any adults we're a youth only organization um so that goes up to u19 so with your programming uh, if they're not going to regionals what is the highest level that they have to compete in uh for for your teams there with soccer main well when the movement kind of to stop going to regionals started to appear about five years ago we we looked at what can we offer them uh, that in, in the way of a championship that would appeal at least, you know, within our state. So we now do uh, a large main state Premier League championship um, at the beginning of every June, which is the culmination of our Premier League play within the state. Um, it's, it's a very competitive, well-received event. We, we try to make it as exciting as we can. Um, and we so we have 12 age groups competing in those finals, uh, which we had the first weekend in June. Um, so in state, that's what we do. And then we really do encourage our better teams to be competing out of state in tournaments uh, throughout the spring and into the summer. And there are a lot of tournament offerings in New England. So generally, that's fairly easy to do. So. I want to talk about, uh, we, we talked about how hot it was in West Virginia this past weekend and you kind of observing and taking in, you know, the, the regionals. Um, what's the weather and the climate like for soccer main in your teams and how does that affect, you know, field access, when you can run seasons, etc.? 
Well, we are cold up here, as you know. <laughs> so our season, we, we try to get it underway, you know, as early as we can in the spring. Um, that generally means March. Um, teams will start their outdoor season by doing some out-of-state tournaments in the Massachusetts area, Rhode Island area. Um, those are our those can be great or they can be disastrous weather-wise because March is a huge question mark all through New England. Um, I think every year one of those major tournaments has gotten snowed out. Um, so our league play starts the end of March, 1st of April and goes through to the 1st of June. We what? play primarily on turf because you won't be able to get on a good grass field until minimum halfway through that season. And your uh, do you have any programming that runs through the fall or is that high school season? How does that work up there in, in Maine? It is high school season. Um, we run a very large 14 and under program in the fall, though, that is actually our biggest league and has 500 to 550 teams in it. Um, and that that league goes from U9 to U14 and runs all the way through the fall to the beginning of November. And and when you say that you run a league that's got 550 teams, are, is is Soccer Maine organizing the league for the state or these local leagues that are you're sanctioning? How how are you as an organization facilitating uh, league play there in Maine? Well, unlike many other states, we run all of the leagues in Maine. So that's something that we started about 10 years ago when we felt that there, there were just no outside groups that were running anything of quality in our state. Um, so we run, as I said, our fall classic league in the fall, which is about 550 teams. And then we run two leagues in the spring, one for our kind of in-state travel slash recreational teams and another for our premier teams. So, uh, how has that been uh, received in the state? Have they been fine with Soccer Maine running everything, or, is, or have you had to deal with any kind of, we want to go rogue? Like, how has that kind of been, been handled? <laughs> we, we think we do a, a very good job running the league, so we've not had any of our own members wanting to go rogue. However, every year we you know, do hear of someone out there who wants to start a competing league, um, but because Maine's a small state, that's really hard to do. We don't have enough teams here to run multiple leagues in the same season that are appealing to the same, you know, soccer clientele. So with the state of Maine, when you look at a map, it doesn't look like it's a massive state. Like, you know, when you look at the landmass of Texas, for example, on a map, right, it looks right. like really big. Oh, sure. But, um, what is travel like for your teams in Maine that are playing in this league? Like how, how much are they having to travel on weekends for games within the state? Well, you know, our, our soccer state is generally maybe two thirds of, of our actual state. And even within that, I would say teams could travel up to three and a half hours to get to a league game. So that that's fairly extensive. And one reason why it's very hard to sell 
out-of-state travel to our teams is many of them travel hours just to play in in our state league. And so when when you have these conversations with these teams and that that play uh, I'm assuming you you you've got different clubs in different cities or towns sure. that are facilitating teams uh is that part of the the conversation too in terms of okay hey we're looking at a tournament in Massachusetts or whatever but we we can't get to Virginia we can't get to right. West Virginia it's just too much we're already doing two and a half three hours you know for a game uh, is it does that have a deterrent effect on participation with some families in terms of the travel and all that or is that kind of part of the culture of Maine like we know we got to drive to get around like how how do, how do families approach that I think within Maine, it's part of the culture. Uh, I don't think that we get too much pushback, except maybe at the youngest age groups. And these would be families who would be really new to any kind of travel. But, you know, as they get older, I don't think we get that pushback at all. I think we do see it when encouraging them to go out of state for bigger, more competitive uh, tournaments and such. So I think we definitely see it there. Uh, but within our state, I think that is the culture. You know, people know that you might have to drive from Acadia to Portland, which is a three and a half hour drive, um, to play in a game. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, every, every state has its challenges. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, so you have a state like yours where, where that becomes an issue. I was talking to someone recently from Colorado and they were, they were talking a, a little bit about the same thing about, you know, we, when we go to play, we've got to drive two hours to this, or if it's outside right. of the, these, you know, collection of cities, um, you know, we're talking about a, a road trip to go play a game that's, you know, seven hours, uh, you know, one way. Um, which, you know, can, can, you know, this is an, an adult, uh, team, but still you're, right. you're, it's a lot, it's a lot to ask of, uh, players, et cetera, families, uh, it's pretty much like you're asking for their weekend, not for, for four hours a night, you know? Um, well, and I, I think over the last five years, there's really been an overall pushback on that where families are just not willing to travel as far as they did five, six, seven years ago for a sport. Maybe it's more, um, more multi-sport athletes, um, but we definitely see it within our, our state. That's uh, it's interesting that you, that you bring that up, that they're not willing to travel as much uh, in, in terms of uh, a shift um, we, especially with seeing some of the, the studies and articles that have come out covering the cost of youth sports, the travel constraints. Um, right. You know, it, it's interesting to see that you're starting to see that as well with, with Soccer Maine. Being a, a, an executive director of a, of a smaller state association, what are, what are some of the things that you would, would change that would help states like yours in terms of whether that's facilities, whether that's access to tournaments, et cetera. What are some things that you would, would look to do that may, maybe could help your state that would be a different 
uh, you know, issue that you're trying to solve than than a state like Massachusetts or Texas, you know, South or or you know, Cal South or something like that. Well, I'm not sure I would categorize it as something I would change, but I think given that we are really seeing this this issue, especially with the smaller states all the way through the eastern region, I, I think it would be great to, as a region, really look at what we can do for the smaller states and is there a better competition method that we can set up that that would help those smaller states to get to that level and maybe not have the travel that we have. And that, that actually came up in conversation while I was in West Virginia uh, because it was noted that many of the smaller states had no teams there this year. Um, and, and that's been, a, as I said, a trend over the last couple of years. Um, so, you know, they might, they might need to explore you know, a New England championship or some other, you know, kind of string of competitions to get to the national championships. Well, and that's the thing that I that I like when I I guess I, when I used to work change, sometimes people can take that the wrong way. But it's it's just finding, you know, solutions uh, in, in, you know, using uh, some some problem solving, creative thinking to to find new ways to do things. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that you guys are having those conversations and I, and I'm, I'm encouraged by that as well. Um, because our, our country is so large and with that comes a lot of blessings, but there's also some challenges and, uh, and some of those challenges you you know, um, you deal with, uh, there with soccer main as well. But one of the, the things that, when when you and I first uh, met, that I w- I was encouraged by it was the fact that you were in leadership, um, and it's something that has been a hot topic uh, with the U.S. Women's National Team and, and equal treatment and and a lot of those things. Uh, I think one of the things that that helps um, get cultures and and companies and organizations. Um, handling those those type of uh, situations better is by having more women in leadership. Uh, how did you decide to get involved there with Soccer Maine in terms of uh, a leadership position in the first place? Well, I actually volunteered to be on their board as a what we call here in Maine a district director, and so that that position on our board is responsible for a certain area of our state. Uh, and the the district director at the time happened to be a friend of mine and was finishing up and convinced me because I was the president of a small club um, to step into that role and, and take a position on the soccer main board. So I did that for about four years before the executive director position actually came up. And I thought, hmm, I would maybe be interested in changing my profession. And so I applied for that job and, and got it. So that was nine years ago. Uh, been the executive director ever since. And your ability to, to run Soccer Maine and your experiences, 
in terms of networking and getting to know people from other state associations and lead mm-hmm. how Im- how important is it that we start to see more uh, like you be able to step into those roles to to help you know lead us forward well i think it's very important and if you're talking in terms of women in those positions um, I think it's crucial. Uh, we we have a great uh, program, many great programs for women soccer players in this country now. And it would be nice to see that flow through in the leadership positions as well. Um, with, with U.S. soccer and with U.S. youth soccer, you know, women in leadership positions on both of those boards are very much the minority, as you know. Um, I think there are three women on the U.S. soccer board and three maybe on the U.S. youth soccer board as well. Um, So that's probably 25%. And and in terms of, you know, how do we how do we find more uh, opportunities. I, I was I had an interview recently with someone who was working locally where they were to run a program uh, on on getting girls to consider coaching when they're playing careers. You know, they were eighteen. Maybe they weren't going to play mm. in college. How can we get them into coaching? How can we get them into leadership? How important is it that? organizations like soccer Maine, US youth soccer US soccer as a federation start to, to, to wrap uh, their minds around some programming that can help institutionalize uh, getting more women into leadership that's a very good question I'm not sure I have the answer for it um, but we definitely need need those programs. We have some unbelievable women coaches in this country. We just don't have enough of them. Um, and, and worldwide, I think we're seeing that, that they are stepping up. I mean, there are, there are at least nine women's coaches um, in the World Cup this year, which was really great to see. Uh, I think that's, that's the biggest number we've ever seen. And you know, we need that all the way through. I think we're seeing on the player side that the women's programming, the girls programming has really taken off, but I don't know that we're quite seeing it in the coaching ranks yet. I know some fabulous women coaches out there who, you know, I'm sure feel like they're the, in the minority. Um, Jill Ellis would be, would be one. So when, when you look at the, the U.S. women's national team and the success that they have had and they, they have been the gold standard around the world that everyone has looked at and they they have been the the team top to bottom most talented team uh, you know that that we're seeing even in this year's World Cup as well um, what what kind of effect does that have on a young girl in Maine in terms of getting her interested in the sport, inspiring her to play? Maybe it's to to get involved like you did in terms of getting on the board and, and then and later becoming the executive director. What kind of influence and impact does the U.S. Women's National Team have 
on on the girls that you that you come in contact with and and then the conversations you have with others well i think it has a huge influence i mean again maine is a very grassroots state so not you know a lot of high level players in this state because we're not a big soccer state but we see it every day i mean our our girls we have more girls in the program than we ever have we've kind of tried to keep track of what's our percentage of of female athletes versus male it's still around 35 38% but that's higher than the 25% that it was you know probably 6 years ago 7 years ago so that's a that's a big growth just in that period of time um you know they they absolutely aspire to be um as good as those those girls on the national team it, it's exciting to watch um, we have we also have several u.s club clubs in our state who do play uh are, aren't under soccer main but they do play more out of state uh larger tournaments larger competitions and and there are many players in in those clubs who who aspire as well. So I mean we see it every day from from the recreational level on up. How important is it for those girls to when they start to play to have female role models coaches coaching them? Uh, through the youth ranks, I'm not saying that every coach has to, you know, if you're if you're a boy that you have to play for a male coach, or if you're a girl right. you have to play for a girl. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying how important is it to for for them to have the opportunity to play for a female coach at least at some point during their youth career. I think it's crucial. And and that still is difficult for us, even in Maine. We we don't have enough female coaches in the state. And we we have talked about how can we encourage that? How can we get out to our grassroots clubs and really push more female coaches? We see them at the very young recreational age groups, and they tend to stop coaching when the kids get a little older or they move to a different level. Um, so the question is, how do we keep them in? Because they do come in at the recreational level. And, and is it in your, in your kind of like, you know, premier that you talked about the premier level right. of your state, is that a, a clear delineation line in terms of volunteer coaches versus paid coaches, or do you still see a mix between the two? How is that? We still see it. We still see a mix here, um, but it's it's many more paid coaches than recreational. But we do have some clubs that still um, they might have kids in the club, so their kids is it's a. Uh, kind of a quid pro quo your kids play for the club for free if you coach one of our teams so in indirectly they're being paid um, but we also see volunteers even at that level so when you look at your state and you've 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 been uh, involved in leadership within soccer main for 13 years with a board position and then now as the executive director right um what changes have you seen? What what growth have you seen in those 13 years? And what do you hope to see as you continue to, to build for the future? Well, the change that I've seen is 
much more organized soccer, um, much more at the young grassroots level, um, new clubs starting. We've had, we've had many new clubs that have started in Maine over the past 10 years, and that growth has continued. We have, this doesn't sound like a large number coming, you know, if you're from a large state, but we have 60 clubs here in Maine. And a lot of people are surprised by that. They, they, they're like, wow, that's a lot of clubs for a state like Maine. Um, some of them are really, really small. And, and when I say small, they might have three teams. But we encourage that. We encourage those small clubs in the hopes that they'll get bigger. You know, we're, we've been encouraging clubs to start in areas of our state where there has been no organized soccer outside of school soccer. Um, and we've been successful in having some programs start in those areas. And that's really encouraging to us because we feel like that that will spur growth at higher playing levels as well. And it certainly doesn't hurt our, our high school system, you know, to have more organized soccer in those areas. So I think we, we definitely have seen that. In, in terms of the, the facilities that you have access to with mm. your state, what are some of those challenges? I know you obviously being in Maine, you're, you're enjoying, you know, 80 degrees around the year, uh, no snow, everything's perfect <laughs> weather up there. So uh, what are some of those challenges in terms of facilities, indoor, outdoor, that, right. that you have to overcome uh, to continue to build the game there in Maine? Weather is definitely our biggest challenge here. Um, no question. We have a long indoor season and we have four, maybe five, five facilities across the state where you could play any type of soccer in, inside. None of those facilities, one is very, very close, but none of those facilities is even a full size field facility. They're all they're all roughly 9v9 size. Um, we do have one facility, which, which is the newest one that was built in Maine, that you can get a tight 11v11 game on. Um, but that's, you know, that's our challenge, is that our, our teams, all of them, especially our premier level teams, spend a huge amount of time indoors before they ever step foot on an outdoor field. And many of them don't set foot on an outdoor field until April. Um, so, you know, we're, we're lucky that we have the facilities that we have. We have two that are kind of in the more metropolitan Portland area. Um, we have one up on the coast. We have one at the University of Maine, which is the biggest college campus in Maine. Um, and we have another that is a smaller facility that is probably halfway between Portland and the University of Maine. And those facilities are used around the clock by not just soccer, but uh, lacrosse and field hockey and all of the other sports that can't get outside during those, those time periods either. Um, so the facilities are, are heavily used. Um, and then we happen to have a lot of turf in Maine. Um, we, as a, a state organization, do not have our own facility, but we have access to a lot of turf fields around the state because we are such a cold weather state. You know, a lot of the high schools and colleges have put turf fields in and they need to pay for those turf fields. So they're more than happy to rent them to us. 
Um, so we we have really good access to those fields, um, and they're scattered all over the state. We just had two more that were built this past year that we haven't actually used yet. We'll probably try to use them for the first time this fall. Um, so that's been great, but it means that our kids, especially in the spring, will play their entire season on turf many, many times um, because we just can't count on the weather cooperating with us to keep us on grass. So when when you are are laying out, you know, a a season for your state, you're primarily looking at, you know, access to turf fields as your primary playing surface, is that correct? Correct. In the spring, not not so much in the fall. I mean, we we have a beautiful fall here. So our fall league is probably 90% on grass. And that um, that playing surface difference. Do the coaches know the difference? Do the players know the difference? Or do, do people just kind of are they used to it? Is it just part of being in Maine? I think that it, it used to, there used to be a, a big difference for everyone, and I think now people are so used to that just being the spring norm, they don't really notice a difference. Um, sometimes that's great for them when they go to an out-of-state tournament that happens to be on grass and they've been playing on turf, which is generally a faster surface. So a lot of times that will benefit a main team going somewhere else um, and, you know, a couple of states away and playing on a grass surface. I mean, grass is the ideal, right? Everybody wants to really play on nice grass, but it's tough when you're in a, a northern state that is in the deep freeze for part of the year. <laughs> that is true um and and i think uh I, you know when when you look at a map and you see where you guys are up there in the northeast you, you're thinking do, do they do they even have a time during the year to, <laughs> right. to get out and play outdoor uh soccer right. um and and obviously you guys are, are are sorting through those issues have those challenges uh and and have to work through them and 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 you've been doing that for quite some time and and doing a great job with that i want to ask you uh kind of one um you know final question and being an executive director of a state uh, i think you've got a really good perspective to to think about how you want to answer this if you were in charge of all of american soccer for a day and you had absolute power to do whatever you want. What would you do with your one day in charge? Wow, Daniel, nothing like wrapping it up with a tough one. Because um, that could require some thought, you know. I mean, I would love to see U.S. soccer and U.S. youth soccer really put together some better systems that benefit everyone um and that starts at the grassroots level and i know there's been a lot of talk over the last couple of years about grassroots grassroots but i don't see those organizations at the top doing a lot for the grassroots um the state organizations do a ton and it would be nice if that if there was a better system out there if there was better curriculum out there so that would be my wish, would be that there was more support for 
that grassroots, you know, starting level of soccer because that's what's going to grow the sport. You are you are spot on with that, and uh, and I think uh, I you know I I'm encouraged that there are people out there. Um, you know, I, I got to meet you during um, Eric Winalda's uh, campaign for president of U.S. Soccer. Yes, yes. And um, and and you know, I I am uh, I have I have my my healthy dose of skepticism and, and cynicism about uh, U.S. Soccer in general in, on certain things. Uh, but the one thing that I was excited to experience. Uh, especially during that campaign and, and, and in the time since is to meet people like you who are working uh, in the grassroots and trying to do what's best for the game right where you are. And you have been doing that for over a decade with Soccer Maine. And uh, I number one, I just want to say thanks uh, as a soccer person for, for putting in the work that you do. It's sometimes, a, oftentimes, a thankless job. Um, and, that uh, it is. <laughs> But uh, I really, I really enjoy our chats, and when we get to to, to meet up and see each other at events, and um, I really appreciate you coming on the show and and spending some time with us, talking through some of the 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 hurdles that you overcome there with Soccer Maine, the ability to uh, to be a difference maker uh, as an executive uh, director and a female executive director, and what that can mean for the future. Um, and uh, and and like I said, I really appreciate appreciate you spending some time with us today well thank you it's been fun and we'll have to meet up at the next event and talk some more some more soccer absolutely absolutely well thank you for coming uh coming on the show today and uh hope you hope you had a great fourth of july yesterday and uh, it was great and lots uh, of red white and blue there you go there you go (laughs) that's the way to go uh so uh sounds good well thank you for coming on the show we will talk soon and look to have you back on again in the future uh to talk more about uh your work there with uh soccer maine and uh really appreciate you coming on thanks daniel Thank you. That was Sherry Levesque. She is the executive director of Soccer Maine, and uh, she's been doing great work in Maine, like I said, for over a decade. And we need more people like her in this game uh, to help us get where we want to go as a country. And um, we need we we also uh, need people like Charity Water, the organization that brings clean drinking water to people all over the world, and they are changing lives and changing villages and you can be a part of that story by going to charitywater.org and there you can join the story be a part of the story and uh and and make a difference uh, in the world as well so thanks for tuning in we'll be right back after this no one No man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. 
You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Welcome back into the show. I'd like to thank Sherry for coming on. All of our guests this week uh, have, have been great this 4th of July uh, holiday week. Hope everyone enjoyed everything yesterday. Coming up Sunday, Sunday morning, World Cup final, the U.S. women's national team facing off against Netherlands. I am predicting a 2-1 victory for the U.S. On the men's side, Gold Cup final against Mexico. I think Mexico wins that 3-1. And uh, we'll see how those things shake up shake up, and shape up on Sunday. Sunday morning, Sunday night. A lot of action for soccer on Sunday. Hope everyone has a great weekend. We will see everyone again on Monday with a really, really big announcement. So uh, stay tuned for that on Monday. Hope everyone has a great weekend. We'll see everyone then. Goodbye.